good morning, everybody. Yes, you will hear a little bit more about the story. And the timing couldn't be any better because as we look at the story of Jesus uh, intersecting with an outsider, as we've been looking at this series of Jesus connecting with people outside of Israel, outside of the commonwealth, outside of the, the privileged one, um, we're going to hear a great story of how God just reached in from the, on the outside and brought someone in and saved their life through the pedophiles. And that's the story this morning. The story is from Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to look at this. We're going to read this passage just in a second here. In verse 21 all the, all the way to verse 28 is a story of Jesus. And it's a story of how he connects with someone that, that from, from a cultural perspective did not deserve nor earned nor uh, was considered worthy of the message that Jesus was offering, and yet Jesus begged to differ. We have looked at Jonah, and we've looked through this beautiful series. If you're new with us, we did a series prior to the series that we're currently on the life of Jesus. We did a series on the Old Testament, the life of Jonah. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. Very, very interesting, the similarity between Jonah's calling to go to Nineveh and Jesus' desire to go to Tyre and Sidon. There's a lot of similarities between these two individuals. And Jonah, in many ways, from the Old Testament, is a forerunner of Jesus in the New Testament. And they line up. It's remarkable to me that, that in both stories, it's a story of God offering grace, God offering his justice and his mercy to the most undeserving outsiders. Um, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. Jonah spends three days in the belly of a well and then gets spit out. Jesus spends three days in the earth, then is resurrected from the dead. Jonah watches an entire nation turn to God. Jesus launches a worldwide kingdom, the new kingdom of God on earth. Jonah sacrifices his will for God's purpose. Jesus sacrifices his entire life for God's purposes. Tremendous similarity. We started this new series on the basis of our vision for a church, which really came out of a lot of thinking, a lot of prayer through the summer. And I want to bring you back to that. I just want to remind you, what is the vision of the River Church? Without a vision, the people perish. A vision is a preferred future. It's what we desire. It's what you aim at. Every person should have a vision. Your church should have a vision. And we have a vision, and it comes out of Matthew 9, verse 36, where Jesus sees the multitudes and he feels compassion for them because they are distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And then he sends his disciples, who become apostles, out to reach those people. Our vision as a church is based upon the compassion of Jesus, and here it is, passion for compassion. You've heard it before. It's in, your, it's in the bulletin. It's in the, it's in the pamphlet that Luke talked about. It's on our website. It's going to be plastered everywhere. Passion for compassion, and here it is. Passion for God produces compassion for people, and you can't have one without the other. To love God is to love people. Jesus gives us two commandments, and he sums the entire law up into two ideas. If you love God, you understand what the commandments are. And if you love people, you'll also understand what the commandments are. And they're related. 
And so our, our vision as a church is to have a, a passion for God so we would have a compassion for people. And that's, this started really developing in our church over the last several years. But this summer, I feel like I got a renewed vision of this. I told you the story of Denise and I on our way to Idaho and all the way back. It's a thousand mile journey. And we uh, listened to a book together. We didn't know which book we were going to listen to because we don't typically read the same kind of literature. And we chose a book called The Four Winds. Kristen Hanna wrote a book about these people that lived during the, during the Rust Belt, during the, the Dust Bowl uh, and the drought in America. And they, they literally lost their farms and had to migrate to California for work. And it was the way in which Californians treated these immigrants coming out that really captured my heart. And, I, and I, was, I was struck by something that I felt like there was a lack of compassion in the heart of people in this historical event in our history as a country that, that moved me to believe that what God values is compassion more than anything else. This recent struggle that we're seeing in the Middle East has given me a tremendous compassion for young people. That are, Their lives have been put on hold. Their, their lives have been shattered as a result of the casualty of war. And we should have a compassion. I saw an image of a, of a nine-month-old child that's in the midst of this, this battle. And my heart went out thinking that I have a grandson, Graham, that's nine, about nine months, you know? It's like this age to think that they would be torn from their family, torn from their parents, and, and subjected to this, this cruelty is beyond my ability to comprehend. And then this recent story that just ties perfectly into this is the past compassion, the passion of God in the life of the pedophiles that now shows compassion for a child that didn't have a family. And the story we're about to read is another story of Jesus' compassion. And here it is in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus had been engaging with the Pharisees. He had been talking about what true religion is really all about. Not the outside, but the inside. He leaves that place, so he leaves Israel proper, and he moves into another land. It's called Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were on the, on the coast, north, which is modern-day Lebanon. And Tyre and Sidon were two very prominent uh, 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 sea villages that that, that were very wealthy. They had a lot of import and export, and they were shipbuilders. These are the, the leftovers of the Phoenician civilization. The Canaanites came from the Phoenicians. And you know the story in the Old Testament of the relationship between the Canaanites and the Israelites. And here's the remnant. This is the remnant of the Canaanite civilization from the land of Canaan that are now living in this small little northern region along the coast right next to Israel. And Jesus leaves his own country to go to this other region, this other area, in order to connect with people from a totally different religion, totally different cultural background, completely different. And he goes. And it says that a Canaanite woman approaches him and sees him and cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Which is remarkable to me that, that this woman who is in desperate need of, of a healing, her daughter is being tormented by a demon. 
She has no place to turn. And here she is in her own country, and in walks Jesus, the Lord, it says. She identifies him as the Lord, the Messiah, the, the son of David. And she walks, he walks right into her country, right into her village, and he approaches her. And she begins, she approaches him, and he, she begins to beg. It says literally beg, to cry out. And she continues, it's an imperative, which means it starts, it begins, and it continues. She just continues on. She is not going to give up. And so she continues to cry out, have mercy on me. Jesus doesn't answer a word. So his disciples come to him and urge him, send her away, for she keeps crying after us. The answer is, I would, she, Jesus answers her finally and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question. Jesus is the one who went to her. And why would he then point out, I'm sorry, ma'am, but actually calls her a dog, not ma'am, a dog, and says, I was sent for the lost sheep of Israel, not for you. I, I find that bewildering. So we're going to have to dig into that a little bit. And so he answers and says, I was sent for the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's, master's table. Then Jesus says in verse 28, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and your daughter was healed at that moment. It's a remarkable encounter with the Savior. A woman who doesn't deserve, who's culturally unaccepted, who is outside of the commonwealth of Israel, of the chosen people, Jesus ventures in and has this interaction, and this woman comes to faith. What's going on here? All sorts of things. But I think it points out most clearly the mission of the church, and the mission of the church is to go. I could easily say, underlying this whole passage, the main idea is sometimes you have to leave your comfort zone to see God do miracles. And if you never leave your comfort zone, you may never see the miracles of God. You have to step out of your comfort zone. And Jesus steps out of his comfort zone. He steps out of his own people, away from his own people, and enters into a, a, an unknown territory. How many times do we step out into an unknown territory expecting God to do something great? And that's what we learn from this interaction. And I believe it's the mission of the church. Emil Brunner is a great theologian, and he sums up the church's mission this way. He says, the church exists by mission. See, the church exists by its mission. And here, here's how he illustrates it. Just as fire exists by burning, where there is no mission, there's no church. If the church loses its mission, it's like a fire that doesn't burn. It, does, it doesn't exist. And I think the church is at a turning point today. It will either grow cold and, 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 and circle its wagons and be known for what it's against, 
and become stagnant of an outside world, aware of an outside world and their needs, or it will become a dynamic force, a mission, a fire that burns within culture because it has the heart of Jesus. And it's our challenge to really learn from this passage. And so briefly, I just want to show you three things. I want to point out the woman, I want to point out Jesus, and I want to challenge us. And here it is. This is the woman. Here she is. She's a Syrophoenician woman. She's, she's from the land of Canaan. She's the remnant. And, and, and what's so fascinating to me is Jesus steps into that world that has been forgotten. We've now moved from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus is born we are now moving from B.C. into A.D. And all that is in the past, Israel and all those civilizations are in the past. And now we're living in a whole new era. And the new era is that Canaan has been lost in the annals of history. And Jesus steps back in time. He steps into the past and reminds the Israelites that they forgot to bring the justice and the mercy and the compassion of God to the people, their neighbors, the people very different themselves. And Jesus, therefore, goes to remind Israel of something that they failed to do. And so he goes back and reminds them that a new king has been born, a new kingdom is dawning. The possibility of a relationship with the living God is now possible for all people. Not just simply Israelites, not just simply Jews, but Gentiles as well. And she is a Gentile. She is a Canaanite, a forgotten person of the past. And Jesus doesn't forget anybody. No one is forgotten in the sight of Jesus. And, and, and then we have to see this woman who is literally desperate. And if you look at the text, she comes to Jesus. She continues to cry out. Jesus turns her away and she continues to come. Look at that. She says, send her away. And she says, uh, she, the woman comes back and kneels before him. She's been sent away. She's been, she's been called a dog. She's been insulted. And she keeps coming back. She just keeps coming back. She is not leaving until Jesus acknowledges her and does what she asks Jesus to do. Tremendous desperation, tremendous tenacity, tremendous commitment on her part and zeal, desiring. I wonder, I wonder if we can learn something about this woman, about being desperate for God to work. I mean, how desperate are you? I mean, this woman, if you notice the text, which is very interesting because three times the Greek word is ook, which means no. And in the translations, you don't see the no each time. It just says that Jesus doesn't answer her. Jesus says, I came for the law. I didn't come for you. I came for the lost sheep. And then finally, she says, only children are allowed at the table. And so Jesus is saying no, ook, which in Greek is no, ook, 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 ook. Three times in the New Testament here in this passage, it says Basically, no. This woman is denied three times. She's insulted. She's called a dog, not a woman. She recognizes that that's true of her. She knows, culturally speaking, any Gentile was considered a dog. She knew who she was. So Jesus insults her. 
I mean, we don't really have a lot of texts where Jesus insults people. But he does, and he pushes back, and he says, no, no, stay away. I didn't come for you. No, you don't have a place at the table. I mean, this is remarkable, don't you think? I mean, if any person has the right to literally walk away and say, I tried, but God refused me, it's this woman. She was given every opportunity to be insulted and walk away, and she didn't. And I wonder if it teaches us something about how fragile we have become as a people, as a, as a culture. We're so fragile that we can be insulted by somebody or hurt by somebody intentionally or unintentionally, and we walk away. Well, I'm never going back to that church. Well, those, that Christian really hurt my feelings, or I've been insulted, or I was called something that's not true of me, and we begin defending ourselves, and we, we, we build up a wall. And, and then we push away. And so many people walked away from the church, walked away from God, walked away from fellowship because they've been hurt in some way. And it's legitimate to acknowledge that. No, most certainly it's true. But I think Jesus was testing her will to survive in a culture that wouldn't accept her and needed to see that she understand who she really was. And they'd be able to come to Jesus with a zeal and a passion and ability to withstand insults, to be willing to acknowledge who she truly was and to come to Jesus and be able to stand on her own two feet and say, I'm not going away. And she does it. And Jesus finally acknowledges that. She continues to approach she knows who Jesus is, by the way. She calls out Curia, Lord, you're the Messiah. It's, it's, she calls him the Messiah. Isn't that remarkable that a, a Canaanite woman outside of Israel is identifying Jesus as the Messiah of the Old Testament and the son of David, the one who will sit on the throne of David, the true rightful king of the new kingdom. And it's coming from a Canaanite woman. It's out of her mouth she identifies who he is. She's not giving up. She can be turned away, but she's not going to give up. No, no, no. And then finally, she says, yes, in verse 27, nigh. Ook, 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 nigh. And nigh is yes. Nigh in Greek is yes. She says, yes, it is, Lord. I'm going to correct you. Even a dog eats from the crumbs of the table that fall from the children's hands. Tremendous, tremendous tenacity of this woman. And here's the two things that this woman does. First of all, she comes to Jesus and admits what's true of her. I acknowledge I'm a dog. I acknowledge I'm not worthy for, at the table. I acknowledge who I am. That's okay. She's fine with it. Because she knows something about Jesus that's going to overcome her identity. And so she acknowledges that and she comes. She's an outsider. I'm unfit for the Father's table. Aren't we all? And second of all, what I notice is that she doesn't hang her head low. She doesn't walk away. She's not angry. She believes there's enough mercy for her at the table, even at the foot of the table. In fact, God, your mercy, Jesus, your mercy is stronger and deeper than my guilt and my shame. It's remarkable. 
She recognizes that. She says, I am not going away. I acknowledge who I am, and there's enough grace for me. And that's the gospel. That's what she does. We can learn something. I wrote down several things about that that are kind of implications. One of them is she had a low opinion of herself, but she had a high opinion of God. We have a high opinion of ourselves and often a low opinion of God because the minute God offends us in some way or doesn't do what we want, we become really angry at God. It just literally means we have a real low opinion of God because what we're basically saying is that God doesn't know what he's doing, and he does. Second thing I learned is that she focused not on the outside appearance, which is what the Pharisees did, but on the inside of the heart. I don't care what I look like. I don't care who I am. I don't care of my ancestry. I know where I come from, but I know God can change my heart. And the third thing that I wrote that I think is, is quite profound is that uh, we just need to notice her zeal. It's greater than the... This is real zeal. She's not giving up. And I would ask you three questions. I would ask you, what is your faith based on? I mean, is your faith based on a true understanding that the Messiah is, is standing right in front of you asking what you desire? And how strong is your resolve when maybe, you're, maybe what you're asking for hasn't come true yet? Maybe you haven't seen the full answer of your prayer. And what do you believe Jesus can do for you? We need to ask ourselves those questions. We learned so much from this woman. But we learn something about Jesus as well. Don't forget Jesus is in the middle of this passage because at the end, this Jesus Messiah, when she says, yes, it is, Lord, even the dogs eat from the crumbs, then Jesus says, woman, changes her identity from dog to woman. Called her a dog, now he calls her a, now he calls her a woman. This woman's dignity has been restored because of the gospel. We do not restore our own dignities. We don't have to support us. We don't have to stand up for ourselves. Jesus stands up for us. He's the one who looks at you and calls you a child of God. No matter of your past, no matter of your, your background or what, wherever you've come from, he calls you a child of God and you stand on that. Woman, your faith is mega. And the Greek word is mega, megale. Su, hey, pistis. Faith is pistis. Su is your. Your faith is megale, great. That's what it says. And it starts with megale is your faith. No verb is needed. Megale, the faith of you. Literally, that's how it's stated in the Greek. For emphasis. This is great faith. I've never seen this faith before. I've never seen somebody stand their ground because they believe so much in God. It's a beautiful picture of God rewarding, as it says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. See, God is pleased by our faith. Did you know that? The one thing that God is pleased at you about is how much faith you have. Because the one who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, the faith that God loves is a faith that's based upon knowing who Jesus is, who God truly is. By the way, three miles away from this woman was a temple, a, a deity, a, a temple dedicated to the deity of healing from the Canaanite religion, and she didn't go there. She didn't go to the false god of healing. She went to the true god of healing. 
And that's what her faith was based on. And God says, if you want to come and be pleased by me, believe who I am and believe also that I will reward you. And sure enough, Jesus rewards her. She gets faith and her, her daughter gets healing. The deep inner healing, and I believe the greater healing is the deeper healing, which is the healing of salvation. Because soteria means to be healed. The word itself, to be saved, literally means to be, saved, to be healed. And thirdly, we, re- we learn something wonderful uh, about our own responsibility. Israel was given a great privilege, and they failed. And Jesus reminds them, reminds his disciples, a new generation, step into a new world. Be willing to go out of your comfort zone. Be willing to do something that you've never done before. Be willing to step out. And it's until you're willing to step out and maybe go across the land, maybe 30 miles away. Think of that. He's in a foreign land 30 miles away. It may be a park next door. It may be a restaurant down the street. It may be a new venture for you. It may be a phone call that you make. It could be something different out of your comfort zone that you do, all of a sudden God begins to work miracles. And so the challenge this morning is will we be like the Israelites, self-preserving, holding on to their religion, holding on to what they have, and circling the wagons, and that's what they did, rather than be willfully disseminating the goodness of God. Self-preservation versus willful dissemination. It's like my sourdough starter. If I, I have the sourdough starter and I love making sourdough bread. And if I leave my sourdough starter in the refrigerator, it will ne- never leaven the dough. And I will never get a loaf of sourdough until I take it out of the refrigerator, feed it, put it in a different environment, introduce it, to a foreign mass called my sour, my, my, my dough. And I mix my starter in with my dough. It's literally salt, water, dough, and starter. That's it. And that's how you get sourdough bread. But what happens, the magic happens when the starter interacts with the dough and begins to live within it. And all of a sudden, what happens? It's this beautiful beautiful dough that then just rises up and then you begin to bake it and you know what's going on. You smell sourdough all throughout the house. You smell bread and you're just like, oh, I want to eat it right now. This is amazing. That's the miracle of God taking us out of our comfort zone. It can happen. That's the mission of the church. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. Jesus reminds us again, of passion for compassion. James and Bray, come on up. I want you to tell a story, a real true life story of God's compassion being worked out as you guys entered in. Tell us your story. Thanks, Todd, so much. Um, yeah, gra- all right. Yeah, grab a seat, Bricks. We got Brickson up here too. Michelle's at Knott's Berry Farm right now. Thank you. All right, go, babe. Um, so as you can see, we have, we have another little um, angel with us this morning, and uh, I just wanted to share, we, I called Todd this week and left him like a four-hour voicemail on his phone, um, 
So as many of you know, we've been foster family for uh, about six years, and we've had a number of different kiddos that have come through our house, and, um, and one of our little angels is next door. We were, we were fortunate to adopt because we're a foster, uh, foster home with an adoption. Like, if the case is going that direction, we say, we'll say yes and adopt the baby. So, um, and as many of you know, we had a really, a really painful um, end to one of our uh, little placements <laughs> um, a few years ago. And we had little Calvin in our home. Many of you loved on him for um, 14 months, and, and it was kind of abruptly um, changed by the, the county. And, and so we went through as a family a lot of pain, a, a lot of uh, hardship, which we knew was a possibility. And um, after a lot of therapy, a lot of youth circling around us, and a lot of time as a family healing, um, we went back into foster care, and went back on the list, actually, as of a week ago, Wednesday. So not this last Wednesday, but the one before that. And um, we get a call Wednesday, this last Wednesday. I'm driving home from work. I work at Biola University full-time. And I'm driving home, and I call Bray and check in with her and, and um, say, hey, babe, how's it going? And she's like, I'm on the other line with Olive Crest, which is our foster family agency. And immediately my mouth goes to like cotton and I'm like, oh no, like I kind of sort of thought maybe this wouldn't end up happening. We could just get the credit for being on the list and not actually have to do anything. <laughs> and, and so, and so the, and as a dad and as a man, um, and I'm just be real vulnerable. My first thought is protect. Like I just, why do I want to screw, screw things up? Like things are great. Um, and you hear any, any foster kid, when you're a foster parent, there is no placement where the child is just like, well, the parents were too good to them. And they just thought, you know, we don't want to spoil the child, so let's take them out. That's always traumatic and tragic, and in particular with an infant. Um, and we heard a little touch of this little angel's story, and it was um, absolutely heartbreaking. And so I'm driving home. I'm talking to Bray after we were on this three-way call with the agent. I'm with a uh, social worker, and it's just me and Bray now, and I say, Bray, I need to pray, and she's like, yeah, me too, and so I turn it off, I'm on the 91, I'm driving, and I just go, Lord, God, I'm so scared, I'm scared to death of ruining things, and I, we all know, like, your fear goes all these places, what, what could happen, what could happen with this kid, and, um, and I say, Lord, I just need your heart, that was kind of where it was, so talking about getting out of comfort zone. I'm like, God, I need your heart to do this. And all of a sudden, it was, it was crazy. And I'm just here testifying. We're here testifying, and I'll hand the mic in a second, um, testifying about, about our God. But it was like, all of a sudden, I had a full experience of Christ's compassion. And I can't explain it other than that. All I could feel and see and sense was Jesus with this little infant who was in a NICU in downtown Los Angeles with no visitors for 17 days and just my compassion for this kid. It was like overwhelming and I'm driving and I look up at one of those billboards that changes, you know, the ones that like, they, like five different slides every minute. And I look up and all of a sudden as I'm crying on the 91 freeway, it's a picture of one, a three-year-old little girl that was kidnapped by Hamas. And I just like, I'm weeping. And I'm sitting here juggling 
Protect my life, protect my safety, my South Bay dream. I have e-bikes. I have a, I just bought a Tesla. I mean, things are going so well right now. And I have this, and the next slide, it flashed, it was a big boy in the morning, 92.3, and he's holding $1,000 to his ear going, call big boy. I used to love big boy in the morning, power 106 growing up. But, and it was just such a juxtaposition of like, like James, what, what do you want? Do you want more money, more coolness, more great, everything's perfect in life? Or do you want to just trust me on this? And so it's like, we just had this moment. So for the decision, I just want to share that part of it. And I come home and Bray and I say, we'll talk to the kids and let's talk to the Lord and let's take a night on it. And then I'll hand off to Bray. Bricks wanted to, to be a part of this. So one of the things we do is we say like, we all have to be on the same page and there's no going forward unless we're all on the same page. So we talked to the kids after we got home from Hunger Heroes and told them and Mitch and Zion were so excited, like, yeah, and Bricks was, is it okay if I say this? Bricks said, I'm scared, yeah, and yeah, you can, you can say, yeah, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a chance, but he said, I'm scared, and he had some legitimate reasons, and he's been hurt before, and he was afraid of that happening, and so I'm like, there's no pressure. We don't have to say yes. I told them we'll call in the morning. I'm thinking, I mean, this kind of a case where you get um, a John Doe baby is like what they call one in a million unicorn baby, and everybody wants that. So I'm like, the fact that we asked for the night is like, we're probably giving this baby up. So I'm just like, Lord, please give one of these kids a dream or something. So Bricks wakes up in the morning and comes running out. Yes, I want the baby, I want the baby. And so we call and say yes, and it was just like Brooke was there. (laughs) Brooke came over. I'm like, so dumb. I just was like not thinking it was going to happen, so I was cutting wood. And she's like, what are you doing, Bray? (laughs) So we we get in the car. We go downtown. I'm like, I, we put in the map how to get to the, basically I'm just trying to give you a gist of God's hand in all of it, like in every step. We put the, the hospital in and there's like four different places we could go and we get to the same area and there's four buildings across the street from each other. I'm like, I don't know where to go, but I can only turn left. So we're going here and we'll just walk into one of these buildings and find out where the NICU is. And we park and walk in the closest building and I'm like, can you tell me which building the NICU's in? And they're like, it's in this one. Who are you here to see? And we're like, John Doe. And they're like, oh, are you the pedophiles? And the social worker's waiting upstairs for you. Just unreal. Like that kind of, that just never happens. And it was, he had been there all alone for for 17 days with no visitors. His, um, his mom had him in a park across the street from a different hospital. Oops. And she had the wherewithal. It's just God's hand. Like, I can't think of his story without seeing an angel, like, ushering him. She had the wherewithal to walk him across the street to a hospital, or then he was transferred to a hospital that had a NICU because he was blue, freezing cold, unresponsive, and just didn't look like he was going to make it. And they 
transferred him and all the nurses are like around us like he's their MVP baby they're like he's he is the strongest baby we've ever seen like he was only on oxygen for one day he's like they were just so like we've been waiting to find out who gets to have him like he he was so loved and I had had this, I know, I have the weirdest kid names, but I had had this name, Tiger, for like eight years. And I was like not going to give it to him because I'm like, well, I don't know if it's going to adoption. And I've been hogging this name. And they just keep saying over and over, like, he's a fighter. He's like the strongest baby we've ever seen. And I'm like, shoot, his name is Tiger. And they're like, you get to name him. Like that never, ever happens. They're like, you get to name him. He's John Doe. We've been waiting to find out what his name is. 17 days and so I want to circle back really quick sorry Todd I'm taking just way too long Denise knows but the day that we went on the call list was November 1st and um, I was totally scared and just like telling the Lord that morning like are we sure this is right like do you know Mitch and Bricks and Zion do you know that their hearts can handle this like what if it's painful again and are you sure this is what you want us to do and I heard him say I just want you to get your toes wet like the Israelites crossing the Jordan and James and I go on a run and we saw Denise and Nancy and James I'm like we're both like what are you thinking about today and like it probably won't happen but you know it'll probably be months and we'll probably get called with like a two-year-old but what do you think and he's like I'm scared but I feel like the Lord's telling me to get my toes wet (laughs) and It was just so like confirmation. I'm like, that's exactly what he told me. And it was this really um, like weak yes, like a barely obedient, (laughs) barely like, okay, I'll do it. I'll go on the call list. And it was my dumb obedience, which wasn't even like much, was just met with like, God knows what my kids need. He knows what tiger needs and he I mean down to he has the same almost exact ethnicity as Zion which was kind of important to us that Zion wouldn't have wouldn't be the only one in our family who is Hispanic and he has a really similar background to Zion it's like God's intimate details have kept me up after being up in the middle of the night because I just can't stop thinking about how how involved he is in every single detail. But Brixton, I want to say you you kind of had a similar experience with a simple yes, right? Um, so I went to bed that night thinking, like, please give me a dream. And I woke up, but, like, I had in a dream. But the cool part about it is, like, you know when you, like, get scared, really scared at night of something, and then you wake up and you think of that thing and it's not scary anymore? Uh, like, I thought of that, and I was like, oh, no, I'm scared to do this. But I felt, like, ten times better about it in the morning. And I, like, was so happy. I was like, yes, I want a baby. I want a new life because I felt comfortable with having a new life because I already, like, started it with Calvin and everything. So I was like, I might as well just do it again. Um, and I kept on, like, trying to eavesdrop to see it. And, like, they they said, like two people were on the call list. So then I went to school and I was like praying all day. I was in my seat, I was like getting all my work done super quick just so then I could have like a time to think about it. 
and like I have like the best teacher ever. So I told her about it. She she hugged me and then she started crying, and then um, I got I got a call like I like I there was like a call on the phone and then a person did it and I didn't even think it was for me. So I just kept on working and I was like, oh, I hope this happens. And then I and my teacher said go up to the office fast. So then I did that and like and. Like, it, the people at the office looked like they were, like, sad and happy at the same time. So then I was, like, really scared. I was like, oh, no, it's probably going to be really bad. But I got the call, and then, like, I heard them in the car, and it was both my mom and my dad. And they were like, oh, we're going to get the baby brother. You're a foster brother now. And I was like, yay. And I, <laughs> I was so happy. It was, like, way more than that. But <laughs> I I went to the um, I I went to my friend's birthday party, and we like kept on like going longer and longer, like it was like so late at night. And then I came home and I, and I um looked at the baby and I thought he was gonna be like more big, but he was the smallest thing ever. He was like this big and he was like putting his feet like this and he was like ah and it was so cute it felt like it was and he made me happy every morning I like go go up to his place where he sleeps and I just like look at him and I feel so good about it so yeah Bricks is like his daddy he'll get a sermon in any chance that's so beautiful well I'm ahead, Luke. Thanks so much, you guys. Hey, can you guys just stay here for a second? We're just going to pray for you real quick. Um, Father, thank you um, just for working in their lives. I mean, it's so evident that your spirit has been a part of this whole thing. Um, man, just what a great example that this family is for us to see your heart, who you are, extending into the community of L.A. And so we ask that you bless them. Bless this family as they raise Tiger. Be with them. Give them the strength and wisdom, insight, everything. And would your Holy Spirit be present uh, with Tiger all the days of his life. Father, he is loved. Loved by this family, loved by you, and loved by this community. And would your love pervade. God, we love you and thank you for this gift. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, While the communion elements are being uh, distributed right now, we're going to take a time just to remember the compassion of God for us. I mean, we worship and love a God who is holy for us and everything. And this is most clearly demonstrated at the cross. And so this is why we take time to remember that this is the God who, who gave himself, gave himself, gave his son, um, And so uh, I'm going to lead us through this time together. So as you get the elements, can you hold on to them? And can someone grab me one, actually? Thanks, Rob. Just this is good. All right. So on the night that Jesus was uh, betrayed, he was gathered with his disciples, and they were sharing the meal. And he took the bread, and he distributed to each of the disciples and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat.
And in a similar manner, he took the cup and said, this is my blood which is shed for you. Take and drink the blood of the new covenant. By partaking of this, we are proclaiming and remembering the Lord's death until he comes again and we get to enjoy this meal with him in the new heavens. So friends, brothers, sisters, we're gonna leave here this morning and we want to remind you that you are going, extending as God's missionaries, as Todd reminded us, becoming uncomfortable because God is moving amongst us. He's moving through you. So go and make disciples of all nations. Go into the world. Go and tell them of the good news of our King. And we do this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, go.